0: Now, the book of Ruth is only four chapters. This is a short book, but it is also, as I'm sure you know, one of the most pleasant and uplifting books in the entire Bible. In very stark contrast to the book of Judges, by the way. Judges is not a very pleasant read, especially when you get to the end. Yeah, you got Samson in there and Gideon's in there, but even those stories end very badly And so when you get to the book of Ruth, it's like a breath of fresh air, it's a cool drink of water, and that's why uh, we love it so much. It is grouped in our Bibles with the other historical books, as I just outlined, although the Hebrew Bible includes it with what's called the Ketuvim, which means the writings or the miscellaneous books. The other categories would be the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, and the Torah, which is the Law, would you know that word, I'm sure. And it comes right after Judges, which is perfect because the verse, first verse is going to tell us this takes place in the time of the Judges. But it's been placed other places in the canon throughout history. It's sometimes placed after the book of Proverbs or Song of Solomon, which also makes sense because Proverbs 31 is all about the virtuous woman. Right, a good wife who can find. And then Ruth is all about a good wife that a guy found. And then Song of Solomon is also all about marriage, and that matches with Ruth. So um, the the location of these books, some people try to make uh, profound theological points out of like the order of the books or the fact that we have 66 total books and it's the number of man. It, those things are really not relevant. They, they've been different throughout time. Si- Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles were combined. The minor prophets are usually read as one book in Hebrew, not 12. So... Um, that, that's interesting to know, but for, for our sake, it's just helping us continue the story. It's going to lead us directly into the book of 1 Samuel. Traditionally, the book of Ruth is read during the Feast of Weeks in Judaism. That's the Feast of Pentecost. When they would go to the harvest, they'll read this story about a, a woman who found a husband and vice versa during the harvest time. It also reminds us of the coming of David and eventually, of course, of the coming of the son of David. So that's traditionally where this is done. And also traditionally, we are told that Samuel wrote this book. The fact is, however, the book is anonymous. It is not given an author's name, and these were not published like our books are today, where the cover will tell you who wrote it. And it could very well have been Samuel, but it doesn't say. Traditionally, this was written during David's reign as well, although, once again, it's it's not certain. There are certain linguistic clues, but I was... Uh, griping to Catelyn last night as I was reading about this, I read a a book that focuses on the Hebrew of Ruth and it was very interesting to somebody like me. And I said, well, that was something because I read 56 pages of somebody analyzing linguistic clues to tell us the date of the book of Ruth only for them to come to the end and say, "Eh." none of these are very good lines of inquiry and none of them are very useful. I'm like, why'd you write 56 pages on it then? Make me read it in the middle of the night. It's like, you, maybe you've got time. i got to preach in the morning, man. But, you know, so anyhow, we, we don't know. There are some, if, if I had to analyze what I've what I read, it all seems to tilt towards an earlier date which is what we would say, but not conclusively. Uh, Most skeptical scholars want to say all of the Old Testament was written after the time of the exile. We certainly don't believe that. And it does make a bit of sense for this to be written during the reign of David or certainly during the, the monarchy because thematically, the book provides an origin for the house of David. Where did this guy come from? It's going to show his family living in Bethlehem and living out an exemplary life of what Hebrews ought to have been during this time. And it also might have been written in order to defend the fact that David had a Moabite ancestress, that his great-great-great-grandmother was not from Israel. And if you're supposed to be the king of Israel, just like today, there's always somebody that wants to dig up dirt on the king or the president or whatever it might be. You know that David's not even full-blood Israelite, don't you? Well, this maybe could have been written to deal with that but it does not have a very aggressive tone and some of these things are, are to be picked up along the way it's not said explicitly so that's why it's there but also it's it's just a great story and most of the time we think of Ruth as a love story and in fact most of the time we think of this as a women's story but it is certainly of course much broader than that the love story is in there but bigger than that it deals with themes of hope deals with themes of redemption. We're going to spend four weeks in it, and I'm excited about every single one of these messages. Because this is going to take place during the darkest days of Israel to that point. And many people would argue that we are living in some of the darkest days that our people have seen, at least in a very long time. And so when you read a story like this, which just brings a smile to your face, and this makes you happy, like, oh, they lived happily ever after, praise the Lord. You can't overlook things like that. I don't go out of my way to be inspirational when I preach. You know, I don't have a problem with that. There are some guys that tell you every week you get up there, people should be walking out, feeling uplifted and feeling good and inspired to go do something positive. That, that is true, but there are certainly times where you need to lay on a rebuke, for example, or you need to talk about things that are not so pleasant, because if they're in the scriptures, you have to discuss them. But it is nice when you get the chance just to preach something positive. And that's what this is. And, and those that are going to say, well, in times like these, we don't have time for joy. Well, the Lord doesn't see it that way. So we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 to begin, and we'll do the whole first chapter today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we get two statements of the setting of this book the first one is in the days when the judges ruled literally in hebrew there and it was in the judging of the judges that is a very Hebrew Semitic way of talking. It's called a cognate accusative. The judging of the judges. Or when it says, I hate them with perfect hatred. Or I have loved you with an everlasting love. That that duplication of the word is very uh, common to Hebrew, which is why when we see it in the New Testament in certain places, it reminds us that the people writing it were writing with a Semitic accent, shall we say, a Hebrew accent. And it also, the second one tells us, there was a famine in the land. But by saying it was during the judging of the judges, this is a reference back to the book that we just finished. And the last verse that we read in Judges, Judges 21:25, says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Not a great way to live, is it? The book of Judges is a miserable book than the way it ends. It spirals down until it gives you two stories that you hardly even want to read out loud at church because of what happens in them. That the land was in a terrible way and there was no king. And so it makes sense that the very next book would say, now here's where the king came from. The good King David came from. And there's this family living in Bethlehem, which in Hebrew is actually two words, bet, which means house, and lechem, which means bread. So the house of bread. And There's a famine in the house of bread. Isn't that ironic? They're living in the house of bread and there's no food to be had. And so they have to leave to go to, it says, the country of Moab. I thought it was interesting that every time it says the country of Moab, literally there it says the fields of Moab. And sometimes that can just be used to vary the language as, you know, the land of Israel, the fields of Moab. But I think it's it's trying to emphasize the fact that because there were no fields that were bearing fruit or bearing crops in Israel, they had to look to the ones in Moab. But really, the story is not about this man, Elimelech. It's about his wife. Although the book is called Ruth, the perspective, and you might say the protagonist of the story is Naomi, whose name actually would not have been pronounced Naomi, would have been pronounced Noomi, it's actually the same sound, the same vowel sound, the kamatz hatuf. It's called so. Naomi would have been her name, and it might have even been a diminutive form. A diminutive form is like if your name is James and someone calls you Jimmy, Jimmy is a diminutive form, right? So Robert and Bobby is a diminutive form. Most people believe that Naomi is actually a shortened diminutive, so her name probably would have been something like Noomia which would mean pleasant before the Lord, or my Lord has been good or been pleasant, and that Naomi is a way of shortening it. I'm, I'm going to call her by the one when, when we're used to just for time's sake, but uh, Naomi. So she experiences this loss. Her husband, Elimelech, which means God, my God is king, and both of her sons also. doesn't tell us how, he, how they died, but her, her husband's name was my God is king. Her two sons, you ready for this? Machlon means sickly. And Kilion means weakling. Now, those are awful names to give your children, by the way. Oh, these are my boys, Sickly and Weakling. (laughs) It's like, what? Did they hate their kids? So some people have speculated that maybe these weren't their names. Maybe these are like placeholder names. You know, like to add to the story, or it could have been that their names were changed because this would often happen during this time. You know, Jacob's name became Israel, Abram became Abraham. But I would hate for my name to be changed to, to I might choose sickly over weakling to be honest with you, but, <laughs> but there's 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 some sense behind these names here that maybe they weren't well, they they did not uh, have a strong constitution, but they both, all three of them died. Doesn't say how, but she has these two daughters-in-law, Orpa and. Ruth, who were not Israelites. And that's significant and will remain to be significant as we go through this book. Most of the time we talk about Ruth, it will call her the Moabitess, the woman from Moab. But it says that Naomi is left. She remains. This is the Hebrew word sha'ar, and it, it can also mean to be the remnant or even to be abandoned or to be left alone. That it wasn't, oh, they, they were gone and now it's just me. It, there's a sense of abandonment and longing and tragedy here. And even in the way it talks about her, her sons. So in verse 5 when it says, without her two sons and her husband. In the previous verses it uses the word Ben, which is like Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. My sons. But in here it uses a different word that means children. Or you might be translated it this way. The woman was left without her two boys and her husband. It's using that very tender childish word that when a mother loses her grown sons it doesn't matter that they're grown they're not oh those men those are my baby boys so she's lost her husband and she's lost her baby boys left by herself now you read this and it's really hard whether to say is this family being judged by the lord Now, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, both places, God promised that if you walk away from me, if you reject me in the land of Israel, I'm going to shut up the heavens so that no rain falls and that no crops grow in order to get your attention and cause you to shuv, to repent and to return to me, which is going to be one of the key words of this chapter. And they do experience calamity as they go away from the promised land back to Moab, the same land that wouldn't give them water and bread as they traveled from Egypt into their promised land. And also, they're going to take wives that were not Israelites, which was absolutely forbidden. And in fact, is going to be one of the reasons God judges them later. So it would be very easy, and I, I would even say appropriate, to use this as an example of calamity experienced as a result of disobeying the Lord. The difficulty with that is the, this book does not make that point. It almost studiously avoids casting blame on Elimelech or Naomi. It could be implied as we kind of read that and go, well, you shouldn't have left. You should have stayed at home. Like when Abraham went down to Egypt and got in all kinds of trouble. You should have stayed home, Abraham. But what it's going to focus on more is almost the the random and senseless nature of this tragedy. Because you know what, guys? Sometimes life just happens. And there's not really a reason for it. There's nobody to blame. Nobody was doing anything wrong. And even if you were doing something wrong, It doesn't doesn't make things any better. Well, I know who did it. Now I I can be okay with it. Pain and hardship are real. And when all the blame is done and who did what and why is this happening, when that's all finished, what we're left with is the simple fact that I'm hurting. I've been left alone. My boys are gone. My husband is gone. I'm in a land I don't know with these two daughters-in-law that I'm supposed to take care of. Solomon would put it this way in Ecclesiastes 11 verse 8. He says, If a person lives many years... "...let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity." And when Solomon uses that word vanity, it's hevel in Hebrew. He's not talking about pointless or useless. He means it's fleeting. It's it's the same word used for vapor. It's just just gone. It's that quick. He says, rejoice in your good days, but know that they're going to blow away like the wind and the dark days are going to come. Right? Ecclesiastes is painfully honest in the way it approaches life rejoice in all your years, but remember that the days of darkness will be many. And it's not always going to be your fault. Sometimes it will be. Sometimes they just happen. When I was in Virginia, and I'm not playing for sympathy here, it's just a good example. Uh, we were sitting at a stoplight, getting ready to turn, and some lady smashed right into the back of my dad's truck. And we were jolted, and it sounded like an explosion went off in the back of the truck. And we were lucky that there was a bed behind us, and that we didn't get, you know, hit that that hard. And we were okay, and she was okay, and, and insurance got all worked out and everything. But as we thought about that, we kept on saying we are, we are really blessed that as hard as that hit was, that there was the truck bed behind us because that could have been really serious. That's how fast things can happen. We weren't doing anything wrong, and we talked to her. Yes, yeah, she could have been looking or could have been slow, but really, I mean, it's a fender bender. They happen, right? Life happens. It just crashes right into the back of you, and you're not ready for it. And now, all of a sudden, you've got bills, or you've got repairs, you've got pain that you didn't have before to deal with. Pandemics come. I mean, nobody saw that come. Everybody wants to act like they knew. they <laughs> you noticed that? Well, if they listened to me, we could have. No, we couldn't, man. That just came out of nowhere. And we were all caught off-footed. And nobody knew what to do. And everybody was scared. Don't let anybody tell you they weren't. And sometimes betrayals come into your life. Somebody who promised they would always be there for you walks away from you. Somebody who you love and who you trust and you confide in does something on the job to go over your head and and take something away from you. Somebody you've welcomed into your house steals from you or hurts you or insults you. There's no escape from these things. That's life. And there's no sense ignoring it. Sometimes, not as often as it is accused, but sometimes Christians think that in order to be a good Christian, I've got to walk around singing zippity-doo-dah and pretend that nothing bad ever happened because that would be negative confession. I don't want to show a lack of faith. That's silly. The word doesn't tell us to do this. Naomi lost everything. And she's also going to lose her faith for a time. We're going to see the way she talks about God. She's going to lose her faith in God, but she's also going to lose her faith in good people. She'll lose, her, lose faith in the fact that people will stay, that people will love you, that, that things are going to work out all right. And it's going to be Ruth who's going to teach her that none of those things are true. And maybe you're living this out right now. Maybe you, you had something happen this last week. You could barely drag yourself in this morning. I I can't sit through a Bible study today. People are going to try to make me feel better, and I just won't have it today. Things are awful, and there's no getting around it, and I'm not going to sit and try and pretend it's bad or that it's not bad. Or maybe you've been going through something for a long time, and you've been going through it so long that you're calloused and you're numb to it. And You're like, I don't even want to think about that anymore. It's the way it is, and things aren't going to change. Can we just begin today by reminding you that God sees you? The Lord sees, and He knows, and He cares how do you know he cares? Because he made you get here this morning so that he could tell you, hey, I care. Well, how is he telling me? He's using me. Maybe he's tried to whisper it to your heart, but you've become so numb and so callous, you just can't hear that anymore. So God said, I'll use your ears then. I'll send my friend, my friend Tyler to go tell you that I care. God cares about you. And today would be a good day to receive his comfort. Things might not get better today, but the comfort can come today. Let's look at verse 6 through 13 now. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, where she had heard in the fields of Moab, there it is again, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, "'No, we will return with you to your people.' But Naomi said, "'Turn back, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying?' No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. We'll pause right there for now. So, have you ever been at the grocery store and you're standing in a long line and somebody's checking out and you see there's a line over there moving much faster? And so you say... I'm going to bounce over to this one. So you bounce over to that one, and then as soon as you get there, the one you were in just goes all the way up. Or maybe you're in traffic, like, that's the lane that's moving. I'm getting over to this one, and then everybody passes you down. And This must have been how Naomi felt. There's no food in Judah, so let's leave. We go down to Moab. Now my family is dead. Oh, no, look, now they have food in Judah again. She hears that the Lord has, it says, visited. This is the Hebrew word pakad. It actually means to pay, that God has paid, as in paid attention or looked or attended to his people. He's visited them, is a good way of putting it, and he's restocked the house of bread. There's only two times in this book where God is said to directly intervene in the story. One of them is right here in verse 6, and the other one is in chapter 4, verse 13, when it says that the Lord granted Ruth's womb to be open so that she could have a child. So both instances, the beginning and the end of God's intervention, or when he is blessing with fertility and with, uh, with blessing, with the fruit of the womb and the fruit of the earth, are very connected ideas in this culture. So she arose to go home, but along the way, she says, I can't. I can't in good conscience take these girls with me. How old were they at this time? It said they had been there about 10 years. And there's a a question of interpretation. Is this saying that Elimelech and Naomi were there 10 years total? Or that Ruth and Orpah were married to Malon and Kilion for about 10 years? I'm inclined to think the first one, that they were in the land approximately 10 years, because it seems unlikely that Malon and Kilion would have been Uh, unable to have a child for 10 whole years. Now, there are some who believe that's exactly what's going on and that God had cursed them and was punishing them because they had left the land of of Judah, but uh, it doesn't say that. So these women are still reasonably young, although Naomi is too old to have any more children, as she says. There's no chance. Because this is what would have been done in this culture. She would have had another son, and then when that son grew, he would have been the one to take his brother's wife. It was called Leveret marriage, and we're going to return to this in a little bit. This is their way of making sure that nobody... It's name ever perished from the earth. Nobody's line died out. So uh, she says, I can't do that. And they said, no, we want to stay with you. We don't want to go anywhere. And she says, it's too bitter for you. I I don't love the way the ESV translates this. It's not wrong when she says, uh, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The sense is better communicated, what has come upon me is too bitter for you. God has decided to come against me, and you shouldn't have to deal with this too. So it's, it's not that it's incorrect, but I, I think it's better her way of, she's, she's very down on herself here. And God, for whatever reason, has decided to make my life bitter, and there's no reason you should have to stick around and be part of that. It's too bitter for you. Marar is that word, the verb is marar for bitter. It's going to come back several times in this chapter. But she wishes two blessings upon her daughters here. And first of all, she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Literally, there it says, may the Lord do chesed to you. Remember we talked about chesed when we were going through the Psalms? This is the word that is translated in the Old King James, loving kindness. And I think that's probably still my favorite way of putting that. Uh, the ESV usually has steadfast love. It's the idea of kindness and love, but it is not just love. It's faithful love. It's love that doesn't quit. And it also has the connotation of somebody that you are connected to in some way. Usually it's God and the children of Israel through their covenant. But here she's talking about that love that you had for my sons, your husbands, and now shown to me also, and not just running off when you had the chance. So may the Lord do that to you. And then she also says that you may find rest. Menucha. This is not the Hebrew word Shabbat which is a usual word for rest, like the Sabbath day. This is a different one, menucha, and it usually is meant uh, in terms of a place, like that you may find a restful, quiet place. After all this trouble we've been through, I pray you'll be able to find a house with your husband where you can live happily ever after in peace, and you won't see trouble like this anymore. So there's actually, uh, I I saw one guy who believes that this this awkward construction here, let me find it, uh, where she says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, Verse 9, it's, it's got two primary verbs, which is interesting. It says, may the Lord grant, find rest, my daughters. So it's not grant you to find rest. One of them is, is a jussive, It's a may the Lord. And the other one is an imperative. You do this. He says, I think what we're seeing here is that Naomi actually has a catch in her throat here. There should be a dash translated. where She says, may the Lord find rest, my daughters. And it also could be her way of saying, I, I'm not going to invoke the Lord over you. Because the Lord has done nothing but bring bitterness into my life. All I can do is wish you well. That it could be her demonstration of her lack of faith. That's one way of reading the Hebrew there. Because Naomi is growing bitter. She's going to get more bitter. And yet what I love about this passage right here is that after that loss that they just experienced, she's still able to show love to these girls. And they're still showing love to her too right? She could legally and culturally, maybe more than legally, have mandated that they come with her. You come take care of me in my old age because you're all I've got left. But she says, no, I'm going to let you go. You go be happy. My life is not turning that way. So you go be happy. And also the girls too. They have their chance to walk away. No, we're staying with you. Are you out of your mind? You're mom now. We're staying with you. Second Corinthians 1 verses 3 through 4 tells us how we are to react during times of trial. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul used that word comfort quite a bit in those verses. The God of comfort comforts us so that we can use that comfort to comfort other people. is that amazing? That the Lord takes care of us so that we can take care of each other. That's what the church is for. Not just to be a place where you come in and, and you hear a speech about some doctrines that you agree with or that you get your blessing or you do your right thing before the Lord. And it, this is where you find a place where when life smacks you across the face, you've got somebody there that can comfort you. I've told you all many times, and I really mean this, don't keep your testimony to yourself. Because there are people in this room that are going to go through the same things you go through, and they're going to need you and need your wisdom and need your comfort. There are certain things that we like to keep private, and I understand why we do that. Maybe there's a sin that you've committed that just devastated your family. Maybe it's something really tragic that came upon your life, like a miscarriage. Or maybe it's just an old life that you lived that you just would rather forget, the way somebody treated you. And you don't want anyone to know. Maybe there's a sickness that you had that for some reason is embarrassing. You don't want to tell anybody. Well, I'm just kind of a private person. Y'all, everybody in this room is going through something. And if they can have you right there, sometimes just the fact of knowing that I'm not alone is all we need to keep going. Because the devil will convince us you are going something through something that is so awful and so terrible. No one has ever faced this before. And that's silly when you say it in the clear light of day, isn't it? But we need those reminders. And to show comfort to each other. Don't be so private in the, in the house of the Lord. That's saying you've got to be gregarious, and some of y'all are, are so gifted in that that you just, you find people that are hurting and you love them. It's like, that's your, how you get out of bed in the morning. I could be better at that. I know I could. But also, that's what we're all here together for, is to love each other. Because when we're going through a struggle like Naomi, all we want to do is grumble and grouse, isn't it? It just feels good. It's weird, but it does. It feeds your flesh because you are indulging the thing that your body wants to do, which is wine or mope. Maybe you don't grumble, you just mope. I'm not going to say anything because that would be unseemly. I'm going to sit here with a sour look on my face until somebody comes up and says, hey, are you okay? And I'll go, no, no, I'm fine. (laughs) Like when you post something on, on Facebook or something where you're like, it's been a rough day, but God is still good. What are you doing? You're wanting people to go, well, what happened? No, no, I don't want to complain. Just, oh, we love you so much. Hey, you need the comfort. How about you just ask for it? Just ask. Find somebody. Call somebody on the phone. Hey, what's going on? I'm I'm really hurting right now. I I just need to talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like a, a female thing to do. It's not. Man, we need to get good at that too. Now, ladies usually will have a much wider circle of people they're comfortable doing that with. And that's okay. Guys, you got one or two people that are like, he's the one that I can say, I'm just really struggling today. And maybe you're like me. I don't do that over the phone. Because it's, it's just I don't like talking on the phone, really. I like saying in person with somebody. And I'll take them aside. And I will really minimize it. But that's my way of letting people know. Because you got to do that. Yeah. Or maybe you don't mope. Maybe you're just, you're grumbling. you let everybody know what you're going through. Because you're trying, no, no. Can I tell you a funny story? I'm making a serious point, but this is, it. Is really relate, relates. There was a girl in our youth group, and uh, she was a newish believer. New, not so new that she couldn't have known better, but she was going through something. And to this day, I don't know what it was. But I noticed that a lot of our high schoolers were not in the sanctuary for worship in the morning, which was not like them. So I went out looking for them. I was a high school pastor. And <laughs> she's sitting on a chair, just kind of looking all sad, and there's two young ladies sitting next to her like stroking her knee and somebody's like playing with her hair and there's like a bunch of guys kind of doing that you know security guard thing like you know like like I don't know what to say but just see somebody try to fight you right now you know and I'm like what's going on and they go she's having a really rough what's going on I don't want to say like what's, what's the problem she doesn't want to go in the sanctuary right now and I had seen this episode before so I said I said, you're not going to come in? No, I just I just can't today. I said, okay, you all go to church. I guess you better go on home then. <laughs> they all looked at me, you can't say that, because, you know, when you're when you're still just first experiencing that, you're afraid. You don't know what's going to happen if I don't give this person the love, and, you know, I, I sent her away, and I sent them into the sanctuary, and then she got really uncomfortable. I'm like, it's not really that bad, is it? She goes, no. I said, don't do that to anybody. Don't, don't try to abuse their love, but that's, that's what we do, right? Sometimes we do that, because it feels good when people are fawning all over you, but you know, don't, don't let that become your, your attitude because people will eventually not like you for it, all right? That's not love. That's just people feeling guilty. What is love, though? Love is choosing what is better for somebody else, regardless of how it affects me. I'm going to choose what you need, regardless of what it's going to cost me. That is love. And it is most needed in times of tragedy. And this is what Naomi is doing. I mean, we're, we're, she doesn't come off great in this story, but this is good. She's saying, I need these girls to take care of me. But what about their life? They've got their whole life ahead of them. I can't help them. Go your way, young ladies. And they're even saying, look, yeah, it would be better for us to go away, but what about you? And if we all treated each other that way, we'd all be okay. That's love. It's needed in times of tragedy. The temptation sometimes is to say, times are so dark... We can't just do things the old way. We can't just love people like Jesus told us because these are serious times. The Lord's commandments were made for serious times, friends. Mm -hmm. You need love more than ever when nobody wants to show it. And the days will only grow darker if we let dark days teach us that love is not necessary. Naomi could have insisted that her daughters come with her. But she didn't. Can I just throw, I, I could talk about this all day, really, but do not further burden those who love you when you get hurt. Now, some of us have a problem with not telling anybody anything. Others of us, we, we want everybody else to carry us around and we make it harder and worse for other people when we're hurt or when we're sad or when we're angry and it becomes everything's got to stop and fix what I'm dealing with right now. I can't, no, you can't be happy in my house because I'm sad. You got a raise? Well, I didn't, so don't you dare be happy about it. Don't be a burden to those. Show love to them, even when you are hurt. And certainly when they're hurt, just let go of whatever you're dealing with and go love them. Decide right now, you are going to be the rock that your family needs in the times of hardship. You've got to decide that I will not be broken by these things. I'm going to be the one that everybody else can cling to during these times. Dads, I'm especially looking at you. Husbands, I'm looking at you. Not that the women shouldn't and don't. We all know great, amazing, godly women that are just the rock for their family. But men, step up and lead. Be that man that she needs you to be. And everyone will love you for it if you do that. So verses 14 through 18, let's continue now. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, implication being kissed her goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. And she, that would be Naomi, says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So Orpah kisses her goodbye. And it's hard to even say that Orpah did anything wrong here. Right? She is is taking the blessing that has been given to her. But Ruth refuses to leave, despite Naomi's insistent commands. I'm sure this was more than two conversations. I'm sure this was over days. Ruth, you need to go. When I wake up tomorrow morning, I want to see you're gone. She swears to follow her until her very death no, whatever your fate is, that's going to be my fate too. It's interesting or was interesting to me as I looked at the the language there where she says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. It's actually much more staccato than that. She says, wherever you go, I go. Wherever you live, I live. She goes, your people, my people. Your God, my God. The stative is implied there. Your people are my people, but it doesn't actually include it. It's punchy. It's I've already made this decision. I'm already with you. I don't have people or gods to return to. Your people and your God are mine. Now, through this story, Ruth is not going to change very much. She's what's called a static character. She starts out great, she's great in the middle, and she's great at the end. The one who's going to change and have an arc in this story is Naomi. And Naomi, you you can almost envision this. If this was filmed, Naomi is the one narrating the story. She's like something along the lines of, I thought there was that nothing ever lasted forever. There was no hope, no joy, no kindness in this world. But then I met one young lady that taught me that none of that was true, and her name was Ruth. And then the title comes up, boom, right? It's not so much about what Ruth did. It's about the effect that Ruth had on her, and continues to have on all of us, which is pretty great. But here, Ruth is demonstrating a higher form of love. Orpah, I mean, she, she left but she was still willing to go if she had not been sent away. But Ruth is gonna go above and beyond that act of love that today we're gonna call loyalty. This is that chesed we talked about, loyalty. This goes beyond affection and kindness to a dogged determination to never leave and never let go. This is where love goes beyond just doing kind things to where, this is where love stops being fun, you might say. It stops being pleasant but it must be done. I will never leave you. I'm staying right beside you. That's loyalty. Proverbs 18:24 says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, or should we say a sister in this story. This is the kind of love that we all need. We all need somebody who is in our corner and will never leave and never back down. But it's also the kind of love you can't ask for. This is too much to ask of somebody else. It can only be given freely. Loyalty is willing to endure the hard times with you. Not just to stand back and hope you do out, come out okay, but to be there with you in the thick and the thin. To endure your bad temper and bad attitudes, as, as uh, Naomi is going to continue to demonstrate in this story. Ruth is going to stick with her. That when you start driving everybody else away by your bad attitude, this person, who maybe isn't very happy with you, and maybe you even have harsh words, but it's one of those, and I'll see you in the morning. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. To stand by you when no one else will. That even when you're wrong, they'll tell you you're wrong, but they'll stand with you and walk through it with you. That's what a father or a mother is supposed to do for their children. When the kids are wrong, that doesn't mean I'm going to approve of what you did. I might tell you to your face, I disapprove of what you've done. But you're my son or daughter, and I'm not leaving you. But we can be that to those that are not even related. This is why people, even through the hardest of times, you know, even through battle and warfare, men will look back and say, "Oh, to have those friendships again, when we were together, we were a unit, we were brothers, we had each other's back, even the ones we didn't like, we looked after each other." You know, to a lesser degree. If you've played on a great football or baseball team. Because, you know, you're sitting there in practice, and you're hating each other, and you're sniping at each other, and you're taking cheap shots. But on that game day, you're all wearing the same uniform. You all run out to face the same enemy, and you see somebody line up against that guy. You, hate, you go, oh, you're in for it now, brother, because he's on my team today. We're not opponents. We're teammates. And this is how family's supposed to be. Don't you have some of those friends that if they called you up today and said, I need you to get on a plane and come see me, you'd pack up and leave? I've got buddies like that. My friends from high school that I didn't even talk to in five or six years, which I'm ashamed to say. Those phone lines go both ways, though, guys. If you're watching this, you can call me, too. But my friends, my friends, Stephen and Matt, and even Richie. I'll throw him in there, too. If he were to call and say, Tyler, I need you to get on a plane and come, come see me with $1,000, no question, be on a plane before the day was over because we're we're brothers in that way. There's loyalty there. And for some of y'all in, in here too, but distance can just kind of emphasize those things. And I hope that you are that for somebody else. I know that if I were to call them and say, I need you guys to be here in Alabama this afternoon, they would. We ought to cultivate that kind of commitment, not from others, but from within ourselves. It's kind of like, remember, Jesus talked about the love your neighbor and they had the, the thing all backwards, trying to figure out who the neighbor was I'm supposed to love. He goes, no, no, no. You be the neighbor for everybody else. The whole world is your neighborhood, friend. This is how it works. And it's like th- that for us, too. We don't wait until the good friend comes along. We say, if, if I'm with you, we are moving in this direction to where I'll show you that kind of love and loyalty. And there are some people that are just God's greatest people, man, where even if they've only known you for a week or two, they'll drop everything to come and help you because they love the Lord that much. They're willing to love his people the way Jesus would. That's how Jesus loved people. Jesus was willing to stop what he was doing, even on his like his vacations, if you read the story, and be interrupted in order to help somebody. Because he didn't see himself as more important than anybody else. And this is the kind of love that Ruth is demonstrating. Naomi is pushing her away. She's got her reasons, but she's pushing her away. But Ruth is refusing to be pushed. That's true, loyal love. Especially when somebody has been hurt in the past. They, they, they can have this understanding that Eventually, everybody is going to leave. And they'll test you. Sometimes husbands or wives will do this to each other. I'm going to be so awful to you to see if you'll stay. It's almost as if I know eventually you're going to go, so I'm just going to try to make it happen as fast as possible and get it over with. We need to be the kind of people that does not work on. It doesn't make it right. In fact, it's not right. And if you're doing that, would you stop? Please stop. Let somebody love you. Trust that they're going to be there. But Ruth is... is, showing Naomi what Naomi hasn't seen anywhere else. God took away my husband and my sons. I sent away my daughter-in-law, and she left. But Ruth is saying, I'm not going anywhere. My life is bound to your life. Where are we going? You want to go to Judah? We'll go to Judah. You want to go to Bethlehem? You want to come back to my land? You want to try somewhere else? I'm with you. That's loyalty. That's loyalty that goes beyond even that everyday kind of love. It says, I'm not going anywhere. Verses 19 through 22, we'll finish out the chapter. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Stirred, there's a, one uh, person I looked at, they said, this word is actually rather intense and could be translated loosely. The whole town went crazy because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So it's been, remember, about 10 years, possibly more, depending on how we time this. And the town is astonished to see her. Naomi, it means pleasant, right? Or the Lord is pleasant. Hey, it's, it's Naomi. She says, don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Remember how she said it's too bitter for you when I'm going through that verb Marar? This is the, the noun for Mara. Mara it means bitterness. And she says that the Almighty, this is the word Shaddai. It's one of the oldest names of God we have, which is one of the reasons we, we think this ought to be earlier rather than later. But as I said, the, the theme is, is consistent either way. It means the almighty or the highest one. It even might be related to the word for mountain, like the one who sits on the high mountain. And uh, that's one of the names we have for the Lord, is that there are other petty so-called little G gods, but we serve the almighty, the highest of the God, the true and living God. We're not trying to find a pantheon to follow. We're going straight to the capital G God, the almighty Shaddai. But she says Shaddai has embittered me. It's even hard to translate in, in English. He has been bitter to me. He has made bitterness come into my life. She says he's emptied me. I went out full and I came back empty. Do you see though how she says, I went away and the Lord brought me back? She's saying I, I lost my agency when I was gone. And now God brought me back empty. He's testified against me. That, that's legal terminology. In the, God brought me into the court of heaven and declared me guilty. He brought calamity upon me. That could also even, it's, calamity is better, but I think there's, when you see these words, there can be a fuller sense. It could somehow be, the Lord has been evil to me. Not like wicked, nasty, but the Lord has done terrible things to me. God hurt me. She's not happy here. It's this very poetic way of putting it. It says, the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She's making these, these heartbreaking declarations against God. She doesn't cut a very impressive character in this story. She's heartbroken. We get it. But her despair has embittered her against even God now. And if it would be very easy to say, well, that's why you shouldn't have left the promised land. But that's not the point the story is going to make. Because everybody's going to go through this, regardless, of, regardless of whether or not you did something to deserve it. She's going to learn different, though. This whole book, every week, I'll try to remember to put it in there because this is how I've thought about the outline. Naomi is going to learn that something is still true that she thought was was gone forever. This week, what has she learned? That in the midst of despair and hard times, even during the judging of the judges, that there are still loyal people. Loyalty is real. There are still good people. Not everyone leaves. She comes back thinking, God has taken away everything from me, but it's not true. Ruth is still here. Ruth won't go anywhere. It says that Ruth had turned from Moab. That's a very interesting thing. She returned in verse 22. She returned from the country of Moab. We've seen that word a lot in here, to return or to go back. Is the Hebrew word shuv, and it's often translated repent, right? To turn away from something is to repent. But when it says that she returned, here's the the key thing. Ruth had never been to Israel. So she's not returning. So I think a better sense there is that she had turned away from the country of Moab. She had renounced her home said, I'm coming back, and I'm going to be an Israelite now. I'm going to throw in my lot with the people of God and serve their Lord. It's very significant. So it's like, who came back? Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, who had turned away from her own land to come to the promised land. So again, if we're wondering, how could David be a legitimate king if he's got Moabite blood? Well, if it's this kind of Moabite. The Lord is always open to people coming and joining himself to his people. Not everyone leaves. Loyalty is real. Love still exists. Do you need to learn that lesson today? Maybe you've been dabbling in some dark thoughts about life. Maybe you're so jaded. No one stays. No one cares. We help each other because we have to, but that, that, that real love, that personal affection, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just a feeling you get for a while, and then it goes away, and then that's life. I found especially people that have been through divorce to some degree can feel this way. whether you yourself were, your parents were, nothing lasts forever. Everything breaks apart. But I'm here to tell you it's not true. God cares about you, and he will never leave you, never forsake you. But beyond that, God's people care about you. We care about you. We want to care about you, and we won't leave you either. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 42, verse 3, it says of the Lord, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, but he will faithfully bring forth justice. Man, Naomi is a faintly burning wick. You ever let a candle burn down to where the wax is all liquid, and it sputters as it gets down, and you know it's about to go out at any moment? When we're like that, God doesn't come up and blow it out. God doesn't do that to us. Naomi is saying things that she shouldn't be saying. She's casting blame upon the Lord for something that the Lord may not have done to her. And she's throwing her lot in with bitterness as opposed to trusting God. But God, what is he going to do? He's going to say, well, you lost faith, so that's it for you. When, when we're bruised, we're about to break, God doesn't come in and just snap us in half. God comes in and says, I get it. I understand. I understand how this feels. And he takes us up and he begins to restore and correct, and fix us, and show us love. How do I know? Because it's what Jesus did. In the worst of circumstances, facing, facing death on a cross, and, and have to go down to the grave, Christ willingly took the pain, without running away, when he had every right to run away from you. He had every right to say, I'm done. After what you did, after the way you raised those kids, after the way you treated that woman, after fill in the blank, I'm not dying for you. I'm not going to go through the worst pain in existence because of you. But it says that Jesus Christ, because of the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He says, I don't care about the pain because I'm going to get to be with you when this is all over. Now he's offering you his comfort and his forgiveness freely. Maybe you did do something. Maybe you're going through pain because of something you did. Well, Naomi may or may not have done something wrong. I definitely did something wrong, and I deserve everything I get. Hey, guess what? The Lord says, I want to forgive you. I want to forgive you freely. And then I got to what? I got to pay for it? No. You'll be forgiven, and you can just walk on from that day. Naomi was wrong to be bitter. She needed to return. She needed to shuv, to turn back, in a whole different way. But not just because, well, that's not right to say that about God. That's blasphemous. It's because God knows that your bitterness is only going to make things worse. If you're going through a bitter time, you allowing bitterness to grow up in you, is that going to make things better? Does holding on to unforgiveness make life better? Does brooding on the things that have been done to you make things better? Does spending all your time telling everybody about all your problems and all your troubles, do you feel better when that's over? So there's a moral component here, yes, but let's leave that aside for a minute. You will never see that peace and joy you're hoping for until you can let go of that bitterness and instead receive the comfort of the Lord. I know that I have days where if I'm upset about something and my wife is sitting there and she's trying to bring comfort to me and I know good and well what she's going to say. I just don't want to hear it because I'm mad and I kind of like being mad. And she's a, she's a wise woman and sometimes she'll just kind of back off and all right, well, when you're ready, we'll talk about this. And then I'll feel real silly about it, and I'll let myself be comforted. And I'm hoping that as I grow in the Lord, I'll get a little better at that, being able to receive the comfort right away. I said, well, God did this to me. The Lord is the one trying to offer comfort to you. The Lord is the one trying to lead you out of these things. Life is hard. It's always going to be hard. Remember what Solomon said? Even if you live many days, there will be full of darkness. Because life is vanity. It's over that fast. Even the good times pass away quickly. But the Lord has offered you forgiveness and love in Christ. Let go of your bitterness and your unforgiveness and your pain, even if it's legitimate. Even if you were to stand up here and tell us all the things that have been done to you, not a one of us would blame you. God is going to say, I don't blame you, but I know that you're never going to see things get better until you fix this. You can change your whole circumstance. You can blow off your marriage and go find a different one. You can move to a different town. You can blow up your job and go do something else. You can abandon your parents and say, I'm never going to let those people around me again. It's gonna, you're going to repeat the same situation over and over because it's the same bitterness and lack of forgiveness in your heart. Or you can let it go now. Now. How? Just decide. God's done everything else. Decide and receive His forgiveness. And then for the rest of us, it's about becoming the kind of friend who can demonstrate the faithfulness of Jesus in someone's worst moments. When you stumble in the darkness, you need people around you that you can cling to for dear life. When you don't have any faith left, find somebody who's got some for you and let theirs count for you because that's what Jesus would do for us if he was here. When you fall, you cling to Jesus, but now Christ is not here in the flesh, but we are, and we're the body of Christ. And together... We can provide comfort and joy to make it through those dark days by showing love and loyalty in our times of loss.